Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Angry religious men, power-hungry politicians, protests in the streets, a murderer set free, and an innocent man condemned. Sounds like the year 2020 to me. It's actually what we find here in Luke 23. Jesus is falsely accused, the victim of injustice. He's mocked and treated less than human, and he did it for us. Why did Jesus willingly give up his life? Why does, what does an archaic method of execution, the cross, and all the drama that surrounds it, what does it have to do with Jesus' rescue plan? So with those questions in our minds, let's read Luke 23. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. Now when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. We'll stop there. Three things I pray that we see here this morning. First, innocence, innocence in the place of the guilty. Second, salvation. Salvation 
in the face of mockery and judgment. And then third, death. Death in the presence of eyewitnesses. First, we see innocence. Innocence in the place of the guilty. Jesus has already been tried uh, the night before, late into the night, early into the morning, before the elders and chief priests and the, the high council of the Jews. It was a late night, unjust trial. And they conclude that Jesus is worthy of death, but only Rome has the authority to enforce the death penalty. And so they bring Jesus before Pilate, the governor, over the province of Judea. Pilate is responsible to keep the peace in an area known for its revolutionary activity. Not an easy job, but it's his job nonetheless. Here are the accusations that come with Jesus. He's misleading our nation. He's forbidding us to pay taxes or tribute to Caesar. And he's saying that he is the promised anointed one, a king. And that last one gets Pilate's attention. Really? Okay. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate examines Jesus. He doesn't find the same qualities found in other rebel leaders. Jesus made no threats. He offers no resistance. Pilate's conclusion is, I find no guilt in this man. No guilt. And the religious leaders are not going to accept that. They accuse Jesus of stirring people up from Galilee to Jerusalem. And when Pilate hears that Jesus was from Galilee, he says, oh, he's a Galilean. Isn't this convenient? Well, Herod's in town, and that's his jurisdiction. Let me pass him on to Herod. Now, Herod, this is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the one who had John the Baptist um, killed. Uh, Herod Antipas ruled a region, including Galilee, for 42 years. But this is Herod the Great's son. Now, the Herods are a complicated, drama-filled family, filled with violence, betrayal, lust for power, Herod Antipas is a puppet king of Rome. That's what he is. He's got a limited amount of power. But Pilate sees an opportunity to pass on Jesus. Isn't this convenient, he's thinking. I'll let Herod deal with Jesus. Now, Herod's glad to see Jesus. He had heard about Jesus, and now he wants Jesus to perform some kind of miracle for him, like some sort of circus monkey. Perform for me, Jesus. Do your magic. Jesus does not do that. And then Herod goes on to interrogate Jesus, ask him question after question, and Jesus does not answer at all. I want you to see this scene. We have the puppet king of Rome, who rules really a tiny region, interrogating the king of kings of all the universe. Herod and his soldiers begin to make fun of Jesus. They mock him. They dress him up as a royal figure and they send him back to Pilate as if to say, here's your king. It's interesting because it tells us that Pilate and Herod, they were rivals. They were at enmity before this, but this day they became friends. In their conclusion together, it's unanimous. Jesus is innocent of the charges that the religious leaders were bringing and he does not deserve to die. That point is made crystal clear in the first portion of Luke 23. Herod and, and Pilate, they knew the religious leaders had an agenda. They wanted to get rid of Jesus. The religious leaders knew uh, the ground was shaking beneath their feet. If Jesus kept talking the way he did, it would mean change. It would mean they would have to change. It would bring radical change to the way they did things. It would affect 
everything that they were doing, they didn't want any part of that. They wanted to get rid of Jesus. And they were corrupt. We know they were corrupt. We've already learned about this corrupt religious system that was in place that Jesus was pushing against. But you know, listen, I mean, people are still trying to get rid of Jesus when he doesn't fit their desires or their agenda. They're still trying to get rid of Jesus when he threatens to change things in their life. Maybe, and I was thinking about that, maybe you are facing a desire Maybe you're walking out a desire that you know is contrary to Scripture, contrary to the way Jesus would call you to live, but you're pushing Jesus to the sidelines. You're trying to conveniently get rid of Jesus because you want to act on that desire or walk through with your own agenda. It's a dangerous place to be. And I would just humbly encourage you to see what's happening and invite you to repent, to turn away from that, and to look to Jesus And to not look at Jesus as one who would steal uh, something that rightly belongs to you or remove all your fun and remove all the the good things in your life. No, instead see him as one who has your best interests at heart, who loves you and whom you find identity and hope and joy and purpose. Stop fighting him. Pilate concludes, all right, I'm going to punish him and I will release him. The crowds freak out. And they're influenced by the religious leaders. Away with him! Release to us Barabbas. Who's Barabbas? Who's this guy Barabbas? Well, we're told that he is an insurrectionist. He's a real rebel and a murderer. Uh, He tried to overthrow some of the governmental authorities in that very city. And they want him released. It was tradition during the Passover season uh, for uh, a prisoner to be released. And, and, and so Pilate, and you can read about this in the other Gospels, there, there's some more detail surrounding this scene. Luke doesn't go into as much detail. Uh, but here is Barabbas, and here is Jesus. And bef- they're before the people. The crowds want Barabbas, a true insurrectionist, a true murderer. They want him in place of Jesus. Pilate mentions again in verse 22 that he finds no guilt in Jesus deserving death. But eventually, Pilate gives in to their voices. Their voices prevail. Here's maybe what was going on in Pilate's head. If a riot breaks out, it's not going to look good on my resume. So, actually, the death of one man, even if he's innocent, well, it's worth keeping the peace. One historian describes Pilate this way. Inflexible, merciless, and obstinate. Not a good description. Now, we see Pilate saying, hey, what's the deal here? Many times. And it emphasizes Jesus' innocence. But Pilate eventually gives in to what is most convenient. What's most convenient wins the day. And his decision, his verdict, is cowardly and it is self-preserving. He doesn't show mercy or justice. Basically, the thought is this. If a crucifixion promises that we can get back to normal, so be it. Let his blood be on your, your, on your head. The verdict is made. The people get what they want. Now, notice how many times, though, Luke emphasizes Jesus' innocence. I've already mentioned that. Verse 4, verse 14, verse 22. And any time um, the scriptures do this, where you see a repetitive theme or 
a word or a theme being emphasized, the author is warning us to see that. It's being made crystal clear that Jesus is innocent. Jesus is fulfilling his calling as the suffering servant of God, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and the surrounding passages. I encourage you, if you've never read Isaiah 53, read Isaiah 53 after reading what we're reading today in Luke 23, and you see the fulfillment just falling off the page. Jesus is the sinless lamb of God. He will become the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And what we see here, again, I want to emphasize the exchange going down of Jesus for Barabbas. And it demonstrates that substitutionary nature of Jesus's rescue plan. We're talking today about Jesus's rescue plan. And what we have before us with Barabbas is the substitutionary nature being presented to us that Jesus would take Barabbas's place, the murderer, and Jesus has taken our place. And this is emphasized throughout scripture. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For us. He took our place as a substitute. Innocence in place of the guilty. Very important for us to see that. Second, we see salvation in the face of mockery and judgment. We pick up in verse 26. Let's keep reading. And as they led him away... They seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the Christ, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ, the King? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. 
Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. We'll stop there. Salvation in the face of mockery and judgment. Between verses 25 and 26, a lot takes place. We're not told about it. Uh, Luke doesn't get into it. But uh, Jesus was flogged. He was scourged. He would have been tied to a post, his hands tied to a post, and his back would have been whipped with leather strips that had glass and bone and pieces of metal uh, tied to it. His back would have been ripped open with muscles and bones being exposed. He would have lost an incredible amount of blood, and he would have been extremely weak. Many men died after they were flogged or during the flogging itself. And there were other things that happened that we can read about in other gospel accounts. That happened before verse 26. Because in verse 26, Jesus at this point can't even carry the crossbeam anymore. And the soldiers find one in the crowd, a pilgrim from North Africa, Simon of Cyrene, and they call him, hey, you, come on, carry his crossbeam. And he's probably frozen in his tracks thinking they just, they're pointing at me. They're, they're grabbing my shirt. They're, they're drawing me in. And Simon becomes for us in just a few moments a picture of what discipleship actually is, should look like. He was carrying the crossbeam behind Jesus. And Jesus himself said, didn't he, uh, that to be a disciple, you must take up your cross and follow me. And so this is a picture of humility. It's a picture of sacrifice. It's a picture of willing to die. Being willing to die. It's a picture of discipleship. This huge crowd is following Jesus There's a group of women weeping and mourning. They're lamenting what's happening. They know what's happening. He's being crucified. His back's just been ripped open. He's he's going to die, and they're lamenting. They're crying. And he turns to them, and he says, "Don't, don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves and for your children. And then he talks about the mountains, how people will call down the mountains on them, try to hide from what's about to happen. He's quoting Zechariah, the prophet. He's quoting Hosea, the prophet. Why? He's speaking a word of judgment against Jerusalem. They had walked in unbelief. The people closed their eyes to God's mercy expressed in Jesus. He says, don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves, for your children. And he quotes this proverb that's strange to us. Uh, He says, uh, talks about fresh wood, which is green. It's less likely to catch fire or be consumed. And then he talks about dry wood, which dry wood would just go up in flames in an instant. And the idea is, if, if they did this to me, the green tree, imagine what they're going to do to you rebels. Imagine the judgment that's going to come, and it did come on Jerusalem. The temple was utterly destroyed. The city ransacked because they had rebelled against Rome, and that was years later. He speaks of severe judgment that's going to come. And that's what Jesus is talking about. And he's led away with two criminals, This is, again, fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 12. And Jesus is brought to a place called Skull, the Skull. In Aramaic, it's Golgotha. In Latin, it's Calvary. And here's what Luke says in verse 33. There they crucified him. That's it. 
Simple, straightforward, no details. Luke assumes that the reader understands what crucifixion involves. It was all too common in his day. Crucifixion was a common form of punishment, the cruelest and most barbaric. The Romans had perfected it, an act of torture. They wanted to inflict the greatest amount of pain and suffering on their victims. It was all about humiliation and shame. It was used as a warning and as a reminder that Rome is in control. And Jesus hung between two criminals, naked and on public display. He experienced excruciating agony. Pain that pulsated through his body, muscles turning into knots as he, as he tried to pull himself up to breathe. Oftentimes, victims would suffocate because their chest cavity closing in on itself. Many victims would go mad, scream at the top of their lungs, calling curses down on their executioners and on all those who are spectators, spitting and urinating, doing all they can as one final act of rebellion against their executioner. What does Jesus do? What does Jesus say? Verse 34. Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is a dramatic display of love. That is a dramatic display of forgiveness. Forgiveness towards his enemies. He lived what he preached. He told us to love our enemies. In the darkest hour of Jesus' life, he called on the Father. Ah, oh, that intimacy. He called on the Father not to deliver him out of the pain and agony. It's not what he asked. Not to strike down his enemies. It's not what he asked. He asked to forgive them. I, do not move on too quickly from this scene, church. This is the heart of the gospel. In the face of disrespect, unimaginable mockery, criticism, torture, Jesus, he chose to forgive in love. They were taking his life from him. So they thought he had surrendered his life. Rome thought they were in control. Jesus was in charge. He knew what he was doing. Years ago, um, Val and I, we went to the Louvre. This is pre-kids. That's what you do before you have kids. Went to the Louvre in France, Paris, and that's where it's located. Uh, but we went there, and we were walking past masterpiece after masterpiece in order to get to other masterpieces. And it felt weird because we only had a couple hours, and we just but we wanted to get to the Mona Lisa and to other pieces of artwork. And, and I just felt, oh my goodness, there's a, a Da Vinci that I'm walking by. Well, I, should be, I should at least give it a head nod. I should at least look at it, but I, I couldn't. We didn't have time. 
Didn't have time to stop and appreciate what was before us. Listen, do not allow this scene to become a masterpiece that you casually walk by or that you become callous to or indifferent to. This is a, a masterpiece. I don't know how else to say it. It's masterful. It's the pinnacle. It's the high point of Luke's gospel. It's the whole point. Everything's been leading up to this. What happens? They cast lots for his clothes. Then there's that onslaught of mockery and disdain. The religious leaders begin. They mock. He saved others. Now let him save himself. If he is the Christ, if he is the chosen one. Sounds familiar. Remember Luke chapter 4? The accuser, the Satan, the deceiver. If you are the Son of God, if, then. Then the soldiers join. If you are the King of the Jews, save yourself. And then, of course, the inscription above Jesus, the King of the Jews, it mocked him as well. One of the criminals. Aren't you the Christ? Aren't you the king? Save yourself and us. Save? No, we talk a lot about being saved. Salvation. Saved from what? This is about rescue, deliverance. Save yourself. Now, the irony is reaching just its limit. If Jesus had come down from the cross, if Jesus saved himself, he would not have accomplished a way to be saved, not for those mocking him that day and not for you and I today. Jesus knew his rescue plan required this. He knew he must refuse to save himself in order to save others, in order to provide full and final redemption. He did not save himself. He came to seek and to save the lost. I want you to think of the best novel or play or movie that you've seen that had the main character sacrificing himself or herself out of love and in order to rescue their friends. Because every movie or every book with this theme, I believe, is a faint reflection of that awe-inspiring act of God the Son. I mean, just think about all the poems and songs that have been written about this scene, about the cross. The cross. Why do we always talk about the cross? It's incredibly significant to us as Christ followers. Think of the artwork depicting what we're trying to wrap our heads and our hearts around because we always want it before us. We always want the, the cross before us. We never want to forget its significance and what it accomplished. Verses 40 through 42, we're introduced to that other criminal. And he says, listen, we're receiving what we deserve. He acknowledges his sin. We're getting what we justly deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Nothing wrong. Once again, we're told Jesus is innocent. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's what he says to Jesus. He recognizes Jesus as king. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Here is a beautiful picture. This is a beautiful picture of the type of person Jesus ministered to his entire life. And he's doing it again. The person on the out, the person on the sidelines, the, the criminal, the one everyone despised. It's beautiful. 
with what little breath Jesus has left in his lungs, he comforts the criminal, comforts the criminal with a powerful promise. And church, it's a promise I don't ever want to forget, and it's a promise I pray that you never forget. What's the promise that Jesus comforts him with? Here's what Jesus says to him, essentially. I've heard you. I've heard you. You've owned up to your sin and you've put faith in me and I welcome you. And you will be with me today in paradise. Same word, paradise, is garden. The paradise of God. Ah, Genesis. The Garden of Eden where they had relationship with God. It wasn't severed. It wasn't broken by sin and shame. You will be with me in paradise. Do you hear me? You hear what Jesus is promising to the criminal who's about to die? How sweet is that? With moments left, moments left in his life as well, he's holding on to promises that Jesus spoke. You holding on to those promises? We're holding on to promises. Then darkness falls over the whole land. Between 12 noon and 3 p.m., darkness a darkness you could feel, a heavy supernatural darkness. It was literal and it was symbolic. What was this symbolic of? Is this the, just the symbol of evil and man's darkest hour where this innocent lamb of God is being slain? Or, or is it something else? I, I believe that this, this darkness is, is a symbol of divine judgment. Heaven and earth are shaken and shaking. The sky was dark like a bruise as its maker received upon himself the punishment for our sin, the judgment that you and I deserve, the wrath of God the Father being poured out on the innocent lamb of God, sacrifice so that we could be free and forgiven. Yeah, it was dark. Darkness was appropriate. Because Jesus had become a curse for us. Galatians 3.13. Because God sent his son to satisfy his justice and to absorb his wrath. How does God, holy and righteous, welcome sinners in? How? He's got to deal with our brokenness. This is how. He remains just and the justifier of those who have faith in him. How? Through the sacrifice of of the righteous one, the holy righteous one who lived a perfect life in our place and died as a substitute and received the punishment that you and I deserve. That's how. And so, what happened just before Jesus' death? The curtain is torn in two. The curtain of what? The temple. The curtain that divided the holy of holies from uh, from the holy place. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was. This is the the symbolic of God's presence. Only the priest would enter there once a year and through sacrifice. But that temple was torn in two, we're told. Why? The temple represents the place where heaven and earth intersect. It's the place of healing and forgiveness and renewal and relationship with God. Sacrifice. But now Jesus is that place where heaven and earth intersect. The curtain is, is, is torn this access now is, is given. How? Through the, the body of Jesus, his broken body, torn for us. Now we have full access to God the Father. Restored relationship. Forgiven. You can read about it in the book of Hebrews, which is like a commentary on these things. I encourage you to read Hebrews. 
Then Jesus called out in this loud voice, an expression of deep trust, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, as if to say, mission accomplished. church wrote about it his closest disciple wrote about it first peter chapter 2 listen to what peter says verse 22 jesus he committed no sin neither was deceit found in his mouth when he when he was reviled he did not revile in return when he suffered he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's what this is about. Finally, death. Number three, death in the presence of eyewitnesses. It's important that we see this. When the centurion saw what happened, the one in charge of a hundred soldiers, the one in charge of the, the whole job, the execution, when he saw what happened, he praised God and he said, this was an innocent man. Underscore, highlight, exclamation point. Innocent spotless lamb of God. When the crowd saw what took place, all the spectators, they were beating their breast, a sign of repentance and mourning. Oh, what just happened? And when the women who followed him from Galilee watched these things, they became from that moment eyewitnesses of his actual death. And they would soon be, next week we'll see, eyewitnesses of his resurrection. They saw and responded. Everyone in this scene saw what happened and responded. Now, church, you see what happened. How will you respond? You have been brought there. We were there through Luke 23. We saw what happened. How do you respond now, right now? He received what we deserve, the innocent one in place of the guilty ones. What does an archaic method of execution and all the drama surrounding it have to do with Jesus' rescue plan? Everything. Absolutely everything. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the cross. When we say cross, we are including everything we just read about. Thank you for the cross of your son. Thank you for this rescue plan. Thank you for what was accomplished there. The full access given. The forgiveness of sins. The substitutionary nature. Everything that just unfolded before our eyes together in Luke 23 today. We're just we're blown away by it. And that is where we want to be. We want to be humbled by it. Keep us standing in awe of these things. Keep us from becoming callous and indifferent to what was accomplished for us. And help us to live in response to it. 
to be empowered by it, to be transformed by it. God, you know my prayer has been anyone who would hear this story for the first time or maybe in a way that is made plain and clear that, Lord, they would leave this place calling on you like the criminal. Remember me when you come into your kingdom and holding on to promises that they belong to you now through Christ. Lord, do that in hearts today. And remind all of us that this is your rescue plan. And it's been accomplished for us. We thank you for it. Amen. 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 Church, I want to share with you two verses from David, who thousands of years before this, this crucifixion, understood the weight of freedom found in salvation that we can also say hearty amens with thousands of years after the crucifixion. Two simple verses that Paul and Romans quotes him from it says this blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered blessed is the man against whom the lord will not count his sin there is weight there there is freedom there and i pray that we all see that today have a great sunday